On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Nate Loomis. He is the Director of Cloud Engineering at Ally Financial. We're going to be covering a few different areas, all kind of focused on talking about team building and team velocity. And, you know, Nate's got a fantastic background, has some great thoughts on improving team performance. He's actually working on getting to Teal, which we're going to have him talk to us about and explain why it's Teal and what Teal means. And I think that's going to be interesting to everyone out there. And I think also we're going to have him touch on, you know, what he's seeing in terms of measuring engagement from his team. Nate, thanks for being on. I'm I'm excited to have you here. Thanks, Amir. Glad to be here. Awesome, man. So I know uh, I didn't do justice to who you are, but just to set context, tell us what Ally does. I think a lot of people know what it is, but help us make sure we're on the same page. And then also, what does your team, you know, a director of cloud engineering, what does that mean? So Ally Financial is a leading digital financial services company committed to our promise to do it right for our consumer, commercial, and corporate customers. Our business, it's bigger than just a bank. We are one of the largest full-service automotive finance and insurance operations in the country, in addition to having that digital direct bank, securities brokerage, and uh, corporate finance business. Personally, as you mentioned, I'm director of cloud engineering. I'm also product manager of the Cloud Patterns Squad, the Patterneers. Within Ally, not all your direct reports are actually on your team. Our squads are, you know, cross-functional. Very cool. And I guess when it comes to your current team and and kind of, um, you know, balancing, I'm just curious about balancing these two different hats, because obviously cloud engineering and also being responsible for product. How do you balance that? Well, it's easier than you might think, at, at least at this point. I think... You know, other managers who have multiple squads, that becomes a little more of a juggling act. And I've done that in the past, but that's where you just, you know, rely on your tech leads or, you know, whatever product managers, whoever is kind of leading the team at that point. In this one, I I like to have a hand still on the technology. I come from a development background. So my sweet spot isn't, you know, further up in management. It's really here where I still get to code and, and experience the technology and also help craft the Agile process. We do have a Scrum Master for the team that manages the Agile process and our Agile ceremonies. And then also, you know, kind of deal with more of the strategy aspects. Awesome. So I guess, you know, diving in, I think the one area I'd like to start with is talking about, you know, how your team is set up. I know you mentioned Agile Scrum. Is it pretty typical Agile Scrum? Do you guys do anything different? I always kind of like to understand how, you know, team's set up before we start talking about velocity and forecasting effort and that kind of stuff? You know, it is typical Agile Scrum in terms of, you know, the Agile ceremonies that we follow. I find every team's a little different, right? And and you're going to want to kind of figure out the culture of that team and make sure your processes fit within it and what, what your engineers care about. We do story point poker, right? And we really capture velocity through story points. We do assign stretch goals for our sprints, and we try to keep teams focused on a single board instead of multiple. Those are some of the aspects of this team. Yeah, interesting. I guess when you mention velocity, I know we've done different episodes covering velocity and you know how it's measured, and people have different views of the important metrics that they're keeping their eye on. When it comes to you and kind of what you're focused on 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 that velocity piece, what set of metrics are you uh, are important to you? Well. It's been interesting listening to some of your past podcasts, and I definitely recommend that others go back and 
and listen to those if you haven't. I feel like story points are one of the biggest benefits that we get out of Agile and being able to measure that velocity. And to be honest, using that to not just drive predictability, but to actually allow you to forecast. To me, that's the key why in terms of why are you using story points. And it's not something that you can get with merge requests. So it was interesting when Ben was talking about merge requests and how he he uses that to figure out the team's velocity. I think the challenge there is you can't look forward from that. You can't determine based on a size of work how many merge requests you're going to have. So that becomes problematic. Yeah, I guess when you're looking at story points and obviously you're trying to understand the predictability and obviously, as you just mentioned, the forecast, when you guys take on a new project, how quickly are you able to establish you know, the quality of those story points? Obviously, you know, the further uh, you get into the sprints, they, our team has been working together, maybe they start getting a little bit better. I mean, is it for you guys something out the gate you're pretty confident in it? Is it you need a few sprints before you're actually, you know, high degree of confidence in terms of what you're seeing? Well, if the team is just starting out, I think this is more difficult, right? Until they get a sense for themselves and uh, how everyone works. But when that story comes in, if it's bigger, normally epics come in, really, and then we figure out what stories are involved in accomplishing that feature, that epic. And with those, we can sometimes have a design session, story jam, whatever you call it. Other times, it will get sized and put in, and some of those stories will make it into a sprint and we'll get there and realize that the work is way bigger than we estimated. And what we do in that case is just list subtasks for the story and then accomplish the subtasks, adjust the story points, and then you can actually push any subtask you didn't accomplish to stories. So in that way, you can still be really specific and quantify the work done in that sprint without having to carry these stories along. And I think that's a big problem with a lot of Agile teams. You have a story and it was bigger than you expected and you carry it for three sprints instead of being able to actually quantify that work. And then you lose that point velocity. You know, you're not sure where the work was done, which merge. So it becomes just problematic in a number of ways. Yeah, and I guess when you're looking at that, and I guess when you, you know, you guys are actually moving the subtask to story, when you're going through your retrospective, is there anything that you've noticed that helps the team identify that and get better with that? Or is there anything that you kind of picked up in terms of having the team understand when they need to maybe take a step back? It's definitely come out in retros. But actually, with this squad now, we've really hit a rhythm. They're more predictable than any of my teams in the past. We, The first three months of this year, we had about 3% standard deviation on what we achieved each sprint. Now, granted, that story points an estimate. But still, like we're able to size sprints pretty accurately. That's actually a really good number. Yeah, it's kind of interesting when you're talking about this. It's almost like you know some of what's missed maybe during the leveraging of Agile or Scrum or whatever methodology you're imp- implementing is actually fine-tuning the system, right? So it sounds like obviously you know three percent standard deviation. You guys have a, a well-oiled machine, for lack of a cheesier term. But it's really, you know, when you're talking about forecasting, obviously, if you can predict what's being done, you can start looking forward to going, what more can we pick up and you know, what can we commit to and team size and, and making sure, obviously, people are, are staying, you know, high performance. How much of what you, like, approach Agile Scrum is focused on that forward-looking component of this? 
I would say a lot of it is, right? Like at one level, that's how you keep your team from overcommitting and then having to burn the hours to catch up. Now, we do establish stretch goals. You should never be in a situation where in your sprint, you've accomplished all the stories, right? So every sprint, we still define a few extra stories as a stretch goal that we may not get to. And then we've also tried to figure out, well, how do we kind of self-manage more, which starts to get into the getting to teal. And I should add, measurements are a big part of this, right? So you're right that, you know, maybe because of my developer background, but I view this as a system and how we're measuring it and measuring our success and then reporting those up to management in a quantitative way is very important. So the story points are just, you know, one of the measurements that drive productivity. We also look at NPS, the employee net promoter score for engagement. We're tracking our defect rate on deployed code to kind of make sure quality isn't suffering along the way. And those numbers are actually pretty good with the current squad. I'm curious about this, but the net promoter score, what are you incorporating and what is being measured? Because I'm just kind of curious. I haven't, I haven't heard that yet from a, you know, a, a metric for a team. Sure. And really, you know, it's interesting because I started this partly because of the remote nature of teams in today's world with the pandemic. Net promoter score is normally something that you would ask your customers to figure out how much they value your service, how happy they are with your service. There is an ENPS, an employee net promoter score. That's really what we've started doing. And we use that metric in our retro discussions. So now we've recently started incorporating it at the beginning of our retro. And it's really asking employees how successful they were in the past sprint or how engaged they felt. There's a number of different ways you can word the question. And to be honest, we're still playing with the wording a little bit. First time we did it, we got 100, which is uh, a perfect score. (laughs) So it's been falling a little bit recently, but we've also been expanding our audience. So I'm kind of waiting to see what the new normal is. Yeah, I want to stay on this for a second because I think it's interesting. So you're when you approach this concept of leveraging the ENPS to kind of help evaluate, you know, measuring the team productivity, I guess when you were first introduced it to the team, how do you go about doing that? Because obviously it's a new concept. You guys are just testing it out. But how do you go about saying, hey, I'm going to introduce a new way of uh, measuring you guys and, and this is what I'm putting in place and this is how it's going to be done? Right. And, you know, I think there inevitably is uh, some element of dubiousness where yeah. like, uh, if that's a word, <laughs> where different people are like, you want to measure what? But I think my team knows me in that I feel like when you have a high performing team, you just can't sit back and let the system run. You should constantly be tweaking things, trying new ways to solve, to gamify, right? Like works what we do all day. So work hard, play hard. It's kind of one of our mentalities. So NPS was one of these, right? Where I said, hey, guess what? This week, we're going to try this out or this sprint more specifically. And the first time it came across, the key for me was just that it was anonymous, right? That we captured totals. We didn't capture individual people. This isn't meant for you to go talk to Johnny and ask him why he gave it a three instead of a 10, right? (laughs) Like This is just an overall measurement of like how engaged the team is. And uh, since then, uh, actually, our Scrum Master worked out where we can post these through Slack or through Teams. So it's actually something that we can even schedule. So it just comes out before the retro, like the day before. Everyone replies. And then in, in the retro, you use that metric to figure out engagement, to help see how it's trending. And it's a conversation starter in the retro. And I guess peel back a little bit more, like 
what is specifically being made? And, and you don't have to tell us the specifics, but you know, I don't want to give away any, any uh, secrets that you're using to build out your team. But like, what is being measured? You know, obviously, you know, you mentioned it was anonymous in the beginning. Is it still anonymous? But before that, well, what's being measured? Well, our question, or at least the one we started with, was how successful were you in the last sprint on a scale of one to 10? And I realized that people can interpret that different ways. It's like, do I have a best friend at work, right? Like, <laughs> it's a little bit vague. And I think we want to tweak it a little, but we don't want it to be a book and we don't want it to be some form you fill out. And I think being too specific would cause you to lose something in the translation, right? Like at some level, we want people to take that and internalize it and interpret it and however they define success. Yeah, it's interesting. When you look at the Agile over the Scrum methodology and self-managed teams, you would think why this feedback loop wouldn't be incorporated earlier just because you're obviously accountable on your stand-ups, you're trying to understand you know, how you partner, the relationship of the team, the dynamic of the team. But this kind of feedback is interesting because it's a chance to be honest and evaluate some of the, I guess, human emotional characteristics of the team that might not bubble up. I mean, it's possible that people you know, want to kind of keep some of this stuff deep down. Right. And we don't get 100% participation and we don't force participation. It's kind of like, um, forget if it's Office Space or Office Max, but one of them, after you check out, had like literally a sign with some buttons that said, you know, how was your visit today? And you could press whatever button you want. And I don't know that they tracked if someone pressed it five times and, you know, five other people walked by. I think the key is not where you are now, but how are you trending? And if you're trending down, right, sprint after sprint, then that's something to talk about in the retros. What's causing this downward trend is, you know, why are we feeling that we're less successful? Is it because work is being forced on us and engineers aren't getting to, you know, estimate the timeframes themselves? You know, what's really the driver? Interesting. I think that's a great strategy. I mean, yeah, it's, I, I like that, you know, obviously it's not forced participation and as well, it's another metric, you know, another another breadcrumb. And I guess when you're trying to keep a team high performing, it's that motivation component, keeping people, you know, engaged. Obviously, people are all remote. What are you doing for that? Because that's the common challenge everyone has is, you know, you no longer have that in-person component to all this uh, team management. Right, right. You know, it's interesting for me because I joined this team last year in May. So everyone was already remote. And this is a team that normally is in the office, you know, before pandemic. We do a number of things. You know, I mentioned that I'm constantly tweaking. So, you know, one-on-ones are key. And I leave it up to the team member, whether it's weekly or biweekly or monthly. I'd rather have some set schedule and not just be canceling them, right? I usually keep them on the calendar. So whatever you tell me, that becomes when we talk. And then we, when it was nice out, and maybe we'll return to it again, but there was a time in the fall where we would take a walk during the one-on-one. And that's always good. Get people away from their desk. It stops me from like, you know, being tempted to answer the five different texts that I'm getting at the same time I'm trying to have a one-on-one. So, you know, secretly, selfishly, there's a need for me to step away. But it also, I think, gets developers out and kind of walking. And it's good to stretch your legs, look into the distance, right? Like just as a health thing. And being at home makes that a lot easier than perhaps, you know, if we were at the office. 
So actually, I was talking to a previous guest, and I mentioned that you know, taking a walk for the one-on-one was really important to him as well, and it kind of got people out of the office. And now the challenge of not being able to do that, and I guess when you're starting to look at that and some of the constraints, you know, what do you bring to the table that might offer you similar benefits? Is it you know anything you do that kind of has somebody step away from their current environment just so they can? you know, maybe have that similar experience or, or is it, you know, just a little bit harder because obviously you got to be in front of the screen. Related to the one-on-ones, I mean, with Zoom, it's easy enough to move it to your phone. Occasionally the wind is a, a challenge. But Take a walk about with the phone. Yeah, that's normally what we do. I'm walking around the neighborhood with, you know, my earphones in and uh, trying to just shelter from the wind every now and then. And <laughs> that works pretty well. I mean, the one-on-ones... I try not to have them focused on work, right? Like if the one-on-ones is a status update, then I think you're failing the purpose of the one-on-one. And especially for me coming in and this being a new team, just trying to you know, be a part of their lives to understand what they're going through and to figure out how I can help, right? From like servant leadership perspective has been important. And it's just the tip of the iceberg, really. I mean, we established a meeting-free day at one point where we had no meetings on one day so people can focus. And that actually has now been taken up by our CTO and it's now uh, corporate-wide or well, for our IT. And that was a huge win. People were very happy. We established a virtual coding corner where people can just all jump on the same Zoom session. It's persistent and you can just join and hang out and kind of approximate that in the office feel where you're coding next to people. And everyone may be quiet and no one may be sharing their screen, right? But it's a little different than pairing because you're not actually watching each other. You're just there kind of together. So there's a number of different um, ways that we've tried to you know, compensate for the remote nature of our lives right now. Absolutely. And the one thing that um, obviously the overarching thing that stands out from this conversation is, and you mentioned, I think, uh, you know, tweaking, tinkering, improving the methodology. It sounds like that's a big driver for you. I can just, it just comes through in your voice in terms of wanting to improve the structure of these, not just the rituals, but the process, the feedback loop. And I know you mentioned, you know, getting to teal being a strategy that you're trying to evolve into. And I guess at the top of it, you know, maybe what you could do is I'd like to have an understanding of you know what that means. I think there's some other colors that you're going to potentially have us go through. And I think this might be the first time people might be hearing this, but at a high level would be a good place to start. Well, I think it starts with servant leadership. And there's some good books on that I could add to the show notes and links that really I, I formed into a, you know, like a leadership synopsis for people here on my team that are interested in kind of growing in that way. But it starts with servant leadership and it kind of evolves from there. It incorporates Agile and the Agile principles. And it's kind of, in my opinion, I think it's what's next. So if you have a high-performing Agile team and you're following the Agile ceremonies and everything's going well and you're iterating, tweaking the formula, so to speak, as we've talked about, then where do you go from there? And I think it, at least I'm intrigued by the Lulu cultural model, which is kind of the underpinning of getting to Teal. And it really defines corporations in different states of evolution, with the latest one being Teal, which currently almost no one is recognized as being a Teal-level corporation. So I, I think it is very aspirational in terms of you know, next steps. And I think based on um, 
Yeah, I think you, you'd mentioned this. I, I did some research. I think you kind of go through different stages of colors. I think you know you work through red, amber, orange, green, teal, and I think teal being the place that you hope to get to. And I think it's the uh, I was going to use the word stretch goal, but I think it's a an ideology of what we're trying to get to about having you know a lot of the self managed functions that you want from a team. How much of you know your desire to improve the process to get to that? you know, teal status is, you know, wakes you up in the morning and, you know, has you go and figure out how you can get the ENPS and try to adjust it so that, you know, you're getting a little bit more feedback for the process? Well, a lot of what I'm doing on an average day with the squad is more around kind of agile in the green stage, right? So, and just to give people understanding, it's like uh, the levels are, you start at red, you can evolve to yellow, orange, green, teal. And so green is kind of agile, lean agile. And, and so we're a lot of it's still there, you know, product over project, right? But then eventually product's going to be platform, right? So it's how do we uh, have platforms instead of products and manage to platforms? I think that's coming. With Teal, it's all about distributed decision-making. So not just empowering your engineers, but really having even large decisions made in a distributed fashion, and then having these uh, self-forming, self-managed teams. And that's kind of the first aspect of this that we've been trying out. You know, we have cross-functional teams. We kind of have this matrix structure for our squads. uh, And we've been trying to figure out, well, hey, what happens if we just let people form a team on their own? Or what happens if we gave them a mission and formed them, but then let them manage themselves, right? Like, and uh, manage their own agile ceremonies and just have it form naturally. How do these things work out? And we're still trying. <laughs> Our two attempts at that didn't work out too well. So, I, I, you know, it's definitely a work in progress. I mean, it's pretty awesome. I think when I was looking at this and I was kind of reading through some of the different stages and there's certain breakthroughs that you're trying to go through and I'm listening to you and you're talking about, I want to, you know, see if a team can self-organize when you're kind of setting up these these word hypothesis to see how it's going to you know turn out how long do you let something like that go for and kind of how much supervision how close do you get to it before you stop it those type of things potentially we didn't let it go long enough so that's a really good question our sprints are 2 weeks so it was 3 or 4 sprints we've tried 2 self-managed teams for three or four sprints. And uh, I feel like the team struggled with context. They struggled to understand requirements. And ultimately, it wasn't driven as much, right? Since there wasn't a clear product owner driving productivity or you know, manager like myself or really even Scrum Master, it was more... I mean, we did have a Scrum Master, but they weren't fully involved just as needed. I think that those teams struggled. And I was actually talking with uh, John Willis about this, but um, you know, his comment to me was that we didn't let them exist long enough. That you know, four to six months should be our target. I think if we venture back into this, I'd like to have squads that reorganize every four to six months. I think there's actually potential, and this is a bit of a soapbox with me, right? But I I feel like there's potential to build in reorgs to your organization such that you take all the stress out of, 
a reorg being tied to your employment, right? Like I think right now, every time people hear reorg, the big question is, do I still have a job, right? Like what's going to happen to my employment? I feel like we need to divorce those two things. You know, and this is really Nate's personal (laughs) kind of opinion and proposal to management within Ally at the moment. But if you have a scheduled reorg every four to six months, I think you can have these squads that form and manage themselves. And then you can allow developers to say, hey, I'd like to be a part of this other squad. And everyone knows that there's a limited time and then you can make adjustments and move people around as needed. I think it allows you to try out promising engineers and lead positions. You can form new squads, get rid of old ones. I I don't know. I could talk about that for much longer. I guess what's interesting is when you're looking at you know, maybe traditional views of team building, the forming, storming, norming, performing process, adjourning, you know, it sounds like what you're kind of talking about is, you know, getting to teal, getting these self-formed teams. Obviously, some of that, you know, I guess the person you spoke to said, maybe you didn't let it go long enough. And maybe, you know, the starting point has to have a little bit of friction, I guess. I mean, it, it is hard for people to come together and know where they fit, uh, that some of that is, just, you know, trial and error. But when you're looking at some of just team building and and getting to teal, you know, is management a component that you're hoping, because obviously for what it sounds like you mentioned, you know, you're not involved or maybe a product person's not involved. If you're moving that management layer away, the real hope is this team is going to actually start understanding the scope of work, the functionality, and actually be able to self-assign some of this stuff as well. Absolutely. Yes, that's correct. And a lot of that involves with having a mission, right, for the company. I think Ally, you know, even its name suggests, you know, that we're there, right? Like Ally cares very much about diversity and solving, you know, being relentlessly focused on our customers, right, is the tagline. But uh, I feel like that's got to be a driver. And there's even been studies that say with, uh, I think it's Gen Z, right, having that mission is key for engagement with Gen Z. Absolutely. Makes sense. And and I think that mission, the why, is becoming very important for people to, you know, feel included, feel like they can get behind that day-to-day grind and actually maintain focus. And, you know, being teal requires people to step away from their own, you know, desire sometime and look at the overall team and the benefit and see where they can potentially help and maybe step away if they realize that I'm not the right person for this team. And that I think, you know, having that higher mission is is always the guiding light. I agree. Awesome. I was actually going to, you know, ask if you're going back to try this and it sounds like it's a work in progress and uh, you've tried it twice, going to go back to third time. Do you envision anything that you're going to bring back or, or try that's hopefully going to lead to success? Yeah, that's a good question. So right now, what we've been focused on in the short term is... Uh, really maturing the cross-functional nature of the team. So we're in a cloud migration state as a company with a growing public cloud presence. And we have a dojo that we formed most recently where you know we join with whatever team that is looking to add their architecture to the cloud and work with them for three sprints. And so these are, again, very short time periods, but uh, we're trying to see if we can make those more self-forming, self-managed. And really, the focus isn't learning, right? It's doing. It's on developing an MVP of whatever they're trying to move to the cloud. I think it sounds uh, really exciting, to be honest. Like, I think you, uh, 
it's part engineering, part a little bit of mad scientist, <laughs> a little bit of part something else. I, I think it's cool because, you know, obviously you can always pick, you know, your rituals and kind of stay with them. And uh, when something's working, kind of hone in on it more and more. But that constant desire to tweak and see if there's a little bit more you can get out of the team. I like that. And I like this getting to teal is that uh, your macro vision and uh, might take you a while to get there, but it seems like it's going to help the team along the way either way. I agree. Thank you. Thank you. And I I do want to recognize that not just me, but, you know, my management up the chain is very supportive, right? Innovation is key to the culture at Ally. and, And a lot of this wouldn't be possible, right, without that executive down support. Yeah, and honestly, I think what's really interesting, you know, with that statement is the support of management and not succeeding, right? The lack of success potentially, but using it as a as a learning tool for you know what was attempt two, what will be attempt three, and down the road, because obviously the macro vision is strong, and um, I think that's to me a great sign of leadership when people will allow you to fail in a controlled manner towards a better, bigger goal. Absolutely, I agree. And, you know, so far, they've been very positive and supportive of even our failures. There you go. Well, my, my fingers are crossed. I'm, I'm hoping we can have you back maybe six months, a year out the road and see how your progress to Teal has gone. And maybe if nothing else, we'll have uh, attempts three through five to talk about to see uh, what you have learned and how close <laughs> you've gotten, because I'm sure you're going to get there. And um, if somebody wants to reach out to you to talk about anything from this podcast, is LinkedIn a good place? Or is there another avenue that they can you know, reach out to you? LinkedIn's perfect. Awesome. We'll include that in the show notes. I know you have some other links that we'll be able to add as well. Nate, thanks for being on. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Samir. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That's the end of this episode. We'll be back again with another topic, another guest. Until then, I always ask for two things. Please keep sharing the podcast. It's just been doing really well organically and it's exciting to see it grow. And the other thing is, if there's any topics, any ideas you have for future episodes, I'm always interested in hearing about them and uh, reach me out on LinkedIn and let me know. Until then, thanks. Thanks.